Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to Energy Enablers, a new podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Foresight and host of Energy Enablers. In this podcast series, we want to talk to the influential people making a real-world difference to the energy transition. These won't just be our usual suspects, but people that are working every day to decarbonize our world. We also want to delve into their backstory a little bit, discuss what motivates them, and how they think the energy transition is going. My guest today is Sylvain Verdier, Senior Business Strategy Manager at Topso. This week, we discuss sustainable aviation fuels and how the aviation industry is shaping up to its decarbonisation challenges. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sylvain, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers. Um, We're going to talk about uh, sustainable aviation fuels today um, and sort of Topso's role uh, and work in that area. Can you briefly explain sort of what sustainable aviation fuels or SAFs are uh, and why there is a need to develop them? Uh, first of all, David, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. So normally what I say is that SAF is seven plus two things. SAF can be many things. And why is that? Because you have uh, some ASTM standards, which are defining which fit, which process, and which product properties do we need. So let's start with the first standard defining the 100% SAF. So I have a unit, I have a feedstock, and I want to make a SAF. And this is the ASTM D7566. I know we should not give many numbers in a podcast, but just mm-hmm. if anyone, you never know. People taking notes. Absolutely. And here you have different annexes. And let's uh, let's take annex one, for example, which is uh, Fisher Drops, so FT SAF. So I can have a biogenic waste, let's say municipal solid waste, I gasify it, then I have a syngas, I clean it, I make fissure traps, and I make on-spec product. And this is Annex A1, so that's one SAF. But I could also use a use cooking oil and doing hydro processing. And here that would be Annex A2. I could do alcohol to jet, and that would be another annex. I think it's A5, and so forth. And here this is expanding. So there's a lot of people working on expanding SAF. So right now we have seven. We are in February 23. I don't know when the podcast will be issued, but it could be that when it's out, there's more than that. So that's the seven part. And here you can blend 10 from 10 to 50% of that product with fossil jet fuel. And then it becomes jet A1. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing. And then there's another one. If you take the, I'm a refinery, I'm producing a Jet A1 from fossil feedstock, and I have the standard called D1655. And here's just two annexes called co-processing. So I don't know, David, if you're familiar with co-processing, but it's basically, I have, a, I don't know, a hydro treater, mm-hmm. a cracker in a refinery, and I can yep. blend up to 5% in volume of my feedstock with, say, used cooking oil, animal fat, and I can make, so a part of the product will be SAF, but not all of it. To, to, to kind of summarize, SAFs are still sort of uh, 
still they're blended fuels they have a an element that is from either a, a low carbon or a, a a clean or a reused fuel stock and it's blended with existing jet fuel and kerosene yes. to make them lower exactly. carbon than yeah. existing exactly but the SAF as such is 100 yes. uh, percent right. not fossil so it that, so it's that a, percentage it, of the fuel is lower carbon i know you you're you're not you're exactly. not keen of, you're not keen it, of clean or green um, it's about carbon intensity. So, yes. And then you blend it with a fossil part, 10 to 50%. Mm-hmm. So, that means, so that means the carbon intensity of jet fuels uh, is falling as more and more um, yes. SAFs and more and more exactly. feedstocks are blended with And then, uh, yes, so standard. Okay, we're going to give more numbers, which I promised myself not to do. Uh, I'm burning one uh, megajoule of fossil jet and then the refer and i'm emitting around it's 90 or 89 grams co2 equivalent so for each megajoule of fossil jet i'm emitting 89 and the goal is mm-hmm. to decrease that so from beginning right to end well to wake so mm-hmm. from the whole production every single step you Absolutely. count how much co2 you do you add it up and you have to be low mm-hmm. so in eu to be uh, biofuels uh, you need to emit at most 65 percent of this and then for e-fuel, so power to jet, it should be maximum 70%. In the US, it's 50% and so forth. So you have, but you have mm-hmm. to minimize emission, but at least 50% in the US and more for EU and US, for EU, sorry. But aviation is only quite a, a small part of the global emissions total. Why is there such a big emphasis and big uh, attention being paid to decarbonizing jet fuels? Yes, it's true. Right now, it's two three percent, if I remember correctly, and but it's going to yeah uh, expand. Let's see how much aviation hmm. fuel, or like how many people will fly more. I expect. I think now it's twenty five thousand aircraft in the world. I remember pre corona, I've seen some predictions up to forty thousand uh, aircraft in twenty forty. I think we will see a lower number, but it's uh, expecting to increase. Of course, airplane, the new aircraft are using much less fuels, so you have a whole part of fuel efficiency, but we'll need yeah, the emission from aviation mm. we need to increase. And then every drop's count. So right now, if I'm taking all the, let's say I have 100 units of greenhouse gas emission from transport, about 10% is from marine, 10% from aviation, and the rest from road models. So it's still 350, 400 million tons of mm. fuel produced for aviation, the same for marine. So it's significant amount. So it's maybe it's 2 3% global, mm. but it's going to increase. And then in terms of fuels, it's still a lot. Mm. So it's a lot of, it's a big share of the products like that the fuel producers mm. are producing. Sure. And is the total uh, aim to fully decarbonize and have entirely um carbon sustainable or, or you know, greenhouse gas sustainable fuels? I wish. <laughs> I hope for. I think it's what everybody wants. Mm. But here again, you have different jurisdiction, sure. different uh, objectives. So you have the Corsia Initiative, which is from the International Civil Aviation Organization, which was the first initiative to decarbonize uh, aviation. And the goal was carbon neutrality in 2050, if I remember right. correctly. It's, uh, it's, not, it's aspirational goal, sure. if I can put it this way. But uh, yeah, airlines have to report the emissions at least, and it's educated the industry about CO2 footprint mm-hmm. and so forth. So the first EU wants to, maybe the goal is not ambitious enough for some, but it's very ambitious if you look at it from a fuel production perspective. Uh, Two-thirds, now so in February again, 23, 
refuel aviation initiative was not approved at EU level yet. Maybe the trilogue is happening now again. So right. let's see when they come out. But the goal of those, the proposal of the commission was two thirds. 63% of the jet fuel used in European airports will have to be renewable. So about, uh, you take these two thirds, so 63%, 35% will be bio jet. Right. So I'm using biogenic waste to make jet. And then the other one would be power to jet. So I'm using some sort of CO2, renewable power, and I make jet. So that's very ambitious goals for yeah. EU. US, they have a different approach. It's more the carrot approach. We give money. We help the fuel producers to produce cheaper. It's more expensive. Any renewable fuels will be more expensive. End of story. Mm -hmm. Who will pay? We will pay when we fly. That's also my take. Mm -hmm. So, but the US, they don't, there's no um, lending mandate. So basically, the airlines and airports will not have a penalty if they don't use SAF. But the state or, yeah, the federal state or some states are giving money to minimize the cost or incentives. And here they hope that this will uh, promote the production, but there's no, they have aspirational goals. I think it's 3 billion gallons in 2030. But uh, yeah, it's not mm. blending mandate. Does it answer your question? Uh, it does, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the aviation industry is taking SAF quite seriously and taking the WIS yes. because of the uh, mandates, particularly in Europe. Um, yes, and the UK as well. Sorry yeah. for not mentioning UK. I'm sometimes too Eurocentric, mm. but... UK is in Europe, Europe that's not is, what yes. I meant. Yeah, but UK is doing that following maybe, I think, the, last, the, lat the latest numbers I've seen is 75% jet fuel in the UK in 2050, which right. is more ambitious than Europe, which is quite high. Canada is looking at it. Uh, Japan, maybe a mandate of 10%. And many airlines are actually committing to, we want to use 10% SAF, mm -hmm. sustainable aviation fuel in 2030, which is a lot. So knowing the price is more expensive, twice, three, mm. four, five times, depending on the fit second process. So it's quite ambitious target. Right. And what about the sort of pr production um, sector for SAF? Mm -hmm. Is that big enough to reach these targets? Uh, so the goal, so if you assume you have 5% SAF in 2030, give or take, would be 15 million tons of SAF we would need. We would need 15 million tons of SAF in 2030. So what, in, what is 15 million? Maybe we don't feel like it. So if you look at fame, so biodiesel, you know, if you have a, a diesel car, use maybe B7, which is 7% of biodiesel, mm. which is a global, uh, every country has more or less blending mandates. So we imagine it's massive amounts of biodiesel out there. It's around 40, 50 million tons. And it took decades and decades and decades, maybe 30 years of policy of blending policies, or maybe not 20, 30, but 20 mm. years to have this 40, 45. So he would need three times less using more or less the same feedstock. So 15 million is possible, but it's not plug and play. And here I mentioned, you remember, David, different pathways. So mm. Annex A1, A2. And here's the first one that will happen right away, that is happening already, is HEFA. So you hydro process, uh, let's say, use cooking oil, animal fat. So it's fat based. Right. And you can make renewable, renewable diesel out of it. So we heard about HVO or renewable diesel. Maybe you are familiar with these terms, mm -hmm. David. But it's more or less the same chemistry. You make normal uh, alkanes. I don't know if you remember your chemistry classes. <laughs> but it's right. hydrocarbons. Right. It's very simple. It's hydro for hydrogen and sure. carbon for carbon. So you want, yeah, I don't know, for diesel, it's uh, C12, maybe less. I don't know. I won't go into numbers. Mm -hmm. But you want to make normal alkanes. Right. And you have that if you do harder process. If you want to make renewable diesel, you do that. So you just need to make it shorter. 
So it's a modification of the process, but you can use existing assets in a refinery. You have, of course, a revamp, you can build new plants, but refineries can do that right away. Mm. If there was unlimited access to fats and oils, we could make a lot of stuff. But that's the main problem. It's in general to all these renewable fuels, it's a feedstock supply, which is a main challenge. So 15 million is realistic. We see a lot of projects. Uh, we are working ourselves on it, but many people have announced uh, big production targets like Neste. Uh, I'm not working for Neste, but I can quote what mm-hmm. they do. Uh, I think at the end of 23, they will have 1.5 million tons. Of SAF available out there. Right now, it's a few hundred thousand. Right. So basically, there'll be 10 times more SAF mm. on the market. So 15 million is possible. It will happen, I think. But the feedstock might be the main bottleneck. Right. Then other pathway would take over. FT, Fisher Trap. So you gasify a waste or you use uh, yeah, hydrogen and CO2. Mm. And then the next one is alcohol to jet. So out of the seven pathway approved now, those are the main three ones that will play a right. big part. Right. So there needs, there's a need to scale up the amount of feedstocks available and that can include things like renewable electricity and renewables generation indeed so power to jet Mm. so and here again it's feedstock Mm -hmm. supply which is a main challenge to me like the power to liquid power to jet is yeah it's not a new pathway but it's more you have to connect it's like the lego analogy we use a lot in denmark you have to connect new bricks together Mm. so the bricks exist per se but you have to connect them and integrate. So, but uh, the technology is not, maybe I work for technology and catalyst company, but I'm not worried about that really. It's really the feedstock. Right. So we, uh, we had, uh, we have our own podcast and we had mm-hmm. one on a myth busting about SAF and right. uh, our friend from Sky Energy in Holland, they gave the, the, in the Netherlands, they gave this example of Netherlands using 4 million ton of jet fuel every year. So mostly Amsterdam airports, Schiphol. Imagine you were only doing power to jet. So you forget fossil, biomass, we said power to, like politicians in Europe, they love the power to jet. Mm-hmm. Now power, they think it's a miracle solution, and but it's part of the solution. Mm. You will see why. 4 million tons of jet fuel, I would need 25 gigawatt. And what is that, 25 gigawatt? It's twice the amount of offshore wind that the Netherlands will have in 2030 for the whole country. The whole, Imagine Denmark, I think, now have six or seven mm. gigawatts. France, seven mm. gigawatts. Like the power you would need is tremendous. So, and then the CO2 as well you would need. EU loves rules. I think the UK as well. Mm-hmm. They will, uh, they have rules about what kind of CO2 you can use. And it's this delegated act that was announced a few weeks back called RFN Delegated Act with all the rules for CO2. And it's also quite complicated. So here, feedstock will be the main challenge i think so technology is there it could be deployed faster if there was more feedstock i think hi everyone me again please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen it really helps us out means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us also a quick reminder to subscribe to foresight climate and energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. So I just want to follow up on that. Uh-huh. Carbon dioxide could be a feedstock. So is the... It is, a, yeah. So where's that... Currently, where's that carbon dioxide coming from? And is the... Could the scale up of CCS technologies then also mm-hmm. help feed in as a? Oh, you want me to talk about blue? Okay, uh, let's start with. Uh, okay, how can I? Yes, you have three types or four types, I would say. Right. Like 
what does a delegated act say mm-hmm. on RFNBO in Europe? And that's let's start there. So they have director capture, yep. which is a future technology. I'm not an expert in this. No. Some people believe in it. I really hope it works. But you need basically to absorb 450 yeah. ppm from the air. You have uh, two companies, Clim- ClimateWorks, uh, mm-hmm. Carbon Engineering, working on this, demo plant in Iceland, mm-hmm. amongst others. Yes, that's one yeah. solution. And they really want to scale up this, but it's quite energy demanding, yeah. so we need a lot of renewable power. That's one side. Then you have biogenic CO2. So it's any CO2 from biological origin. So basically, when you burn your fuel, the CO2 will have already been in the atmosphere. So it's not new CO2 you put right. in the atmosphere. That makes sense. So here it could be, I don't know, ethanol production. You have CO2. Uh, you could burn some, uh, I don't know, in in Denmark, for example, I think they burn uh, biogenic waste, forestry residue, and so forth. And here you could collect the CO2, carbon capture, and then use that CO2. And here it's allowed, in EU, will be allowed forever. And then they have the fossil CO2. Mm. So let's say I'm producing electricity, burning gas, natural gas. And here that CO2 in Europe will be allowed until 2035. So if I make e-jet, power to jet using fossil CO2, from uh, electricity production until uh, 2035, it's approved. This is power to jet. Mm-hmm. But after 2035, that's it. EU says it's not it's not SAF anymore. So it's wow. really SAF actually has a, normally I, I say it has four angles. So you have the technical specs, which mm-hmm. I mentioned, the STM standard. Then you have a sustainability side, which is personal mm-hmm. ethics, guidelines, and so forth. Then you have what legislators tell you. Mm-hmm. And then you have what the market wants, which is always or often the cheapest. So you have many different aspects to SAF. It's not, which yeah. is why I think it's fascinating. It's Absolutely. a complexity of it. So that's one CO2. And the last point, it's CO2 from uh, hard to abate sectors, still right. cement producers. Like when you, I think, I, I don't know much about cement, but you have to, uh, yeah, uh, calcium carbonate that will always emit CO2 because that's the rock yeah. has CO2 and that's it. So here they said that in Europe, say until 2040, you can use that CO2, but afterwards you can't. Right. So it's US has no rules on CO2 so far, the UK I can't recall. Mm. So here again, uh, but if I have to import fuel in Europe, I will have to follow the EU rules for electricity, for CO2, mm-hmm. and also for biomass. So I wish stuff was one product, one technology, Absolutely. the same role, yeah. the same way to calculate CO2, but it's not the case. Do you think that might be the case? Maybe 30, 40, 50 years in the future? I don't know. I, will there be, I will there be, a, will there be there a some work. contraction and, uh, of technologies and, and people finding what the cheapest and what the most efficient systems uh, Technologies, are? no, because you need, it's really feedstock dependent. Right. So, I don't know. I'm thinking uh, in Scandinavia, Sweden, a lot of forestry residue, they use that. Some other country will be municipal solid waste. Some countries will be renewable power. Some country could be, I don't know, use cooking oil. So you have each technology. To me, it's my uh, yeah, yeah. one euro input. I think would be based on more of the feedstocks and then the yield eventually, which how much stuff do you get out of the feedstock you have? Yeah. So, so there's, is there an efficiency issue? Is there different feedstocks where you can generate more SAF with less of that feedstock? Uh, you, it's hard to say. <laughs> the more hydrogen and carbon you have in your feedstock, the more jet fuel you will have. Right. If you have, let's say, if you take, uh, I don't know, uh, lignocellulose from forestry residue, you have a lot of water, mm. a lot of oxygen, and you don't want that. Right. So maybe 50% of it in the feedstock would be not useful to make. I see. 
jet fuel. So it's yeah, the closer it is to hydrocarbons, the more jet fuel you will get. Right. So for example, plastic waste. In Europe, it's classified as recycled carbon fuels. You cannot make, it's not considered as SAF. So no. it, I could make SAF technically, although it's not approved yet technically, mm -hmm. like from a SAF, uh, STM perspective. Some people are applying for it using a tires, so end of life tires. Okay. You could make a, a jet fuel out of it, but EU would say, no, it's not SAF. So, but here it looks very much like it's like liquid hydro. It is almost hydrocarbon with a few things. Yeah. So, but yeah, the far the farther you are from the final product, right. the lower the yield. Sure, that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, David? absolutely, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of efficiency losses in in that. Exactly. Um, but then each product, its process will be optimized, improve mm. energy efficiency, and so forth. So, but again, technology, it's not the main concern I have. Mm. It's really feedstock regulations. Right. Those are the two main bottlenecks, or not bottlenecks, but uh, points of uncertainty we see. Yeah. Um, and just quickly, so uh, the thing with um, SAFs and with, with, the, with these fuels, again, they still have an element mainly, uh, at least for the time being, uh, an element of a fossil fuel in them. Um, but it's not just carbon intensity of the uh, of the fuels that's an issue for climate change. There's other effects. Ah, um, uh, yeah, the non uh, CO2 right. effect. Do you Is mind that explaining you mean, that a little bit? Oh, yes, I'm not an expert <laughs> on that, I have to say, and I'm not sure there are many out there either. So it's this non-CO2 effect. So it's basically, you know, when you see a plane, you have the contrail, what's mm. behind the plane, and it's normally water and then some soot. So, and then you also have uh, unburned hydrocarbons. You could have uh, SOx, NOx, all sorts of emissions. And some research, I think, started with a report from NASA in 1990s, and the European equivalent EASA also looked at it. You have a lot of projects. But they said that it could be half or two-thirds of the climate emissions, or impact, sorry, of aviation, mm. could be due to this non-CO2 effect. So not the CO2, the CO2 produced during combustion, but all these things. All the other emissions. So exactly. So now there's more focus about it, more research project. Uh, some groups like in Europe, uh, DLA is looking at it, Imperial College, I think mm. in London as well. Uh, you have a lot of, the NASA continues the work also. And so it's a lot of work being done and regulators start looking at it. I think there was an amendment from the European Parliament on a refugee aviation where the, the Parliament wants the commission to propose uh, regulations to minimize aromatics and sulfur in jet fuel general doesn't matter if it's SAF or mm. fossil jet to decrease that so and it's a good thing like because SAF has no sulfur and very little aromatic so it's already emitting it's it's emitting much less it has less non-CO2 effect mm. but the fossil jet right now the maximum aromatic content is 25 percent right. in weight and uh, maximum 3000 ppm so it's very uh, lose specs compared to diesel mm -hmm. to road fuels mm -hmm. so here this can be improved again with technology and some uh, ngos are working on it and i've been uh, lobbying for that mm -hmm. it's not CO2 effects for a while right um but obviously that so the more low carbon intensity feedstocks we can put into jet fuels a will reduce these non-carbon non-co2 effects as well if this uh, yes because you have again no aromatics no sulfur no nitrogen. Mm -hmm. right. So the, the non-CO2 effects will be much lower. Absolutely. Um, Correct. Will the development of these um, sustainable fuels and the various um, growth of the different feedstocks, will that help other sectors? Um, I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned hydrocarbons. The aim is to produce these hydrocarbons. So will it be able to help produce cleaner, for want of a better word, uh, like plastics and other materials? And will it obviously help the shipping industry as well? It's not just for the aviation. Road, yes, 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 yes. No, you... 
with this technology, you can produce uh, liquid transport fuels. Right. And here, so anyone using liquid, like to make each power to jet or power to diesel, tomato, tomato. It's the same plant. You just need to adjust uh, severity, maybe a few hydrocrackers the last bit, but that's it. So it's the same for renewable diesel and SAF or HEFA. It's more or less a matter of severity and process layout, but it's mm. not that different. So yes, if the marine industry was willing to pay the price of staff, mm. and they will have to decarbonize because it, similar to a refuel aviation at, at European level, there's mm. also an initiative called Fuel EU Maritime, where the aviation segment in Europe has to decrease by 75% emission in 2050. Right. So it's quite ambitious as well. So here, yes, the, some fuel for marine is of the future are methanol and ammonia. This cannot be produced like, yes, you cannot produce that it's not the same as stuff. Right. Okay. The minor edge planes will not run on methanol and ammonia. I've heard recently something about ammonia and turbine. I was like, okay, let's see. But okay. it's not, yeah. those are not hydrocarbons per right. se. So it's a different approach. Hydrogen might be used. We know mm -hmm. Airbus and Boeing are working on green hydrogen for mm -hmm. medium and a short haul flight. So why not? But yes, some of the parts of the process would be able, would, we can be used to make ammonia, methanol, or green hydrogen, right. definitely. So, yes. So what matters is to deploy this technology, show the work. Hmm. There will be some, uh, in the energy, uh, yeah, baby sicknesses, baby illness, hmm. I don't know how you say that in of English. Yes, but, yes, exactly. Uh, to start with, there will be a few challenges, hmm. but I think SAF will be definitely deployed faster. Earlier. Amazing. Um, Sylvain, thank you so much. This is a really interesting conversation on, on the sustainability of fuels and one that we can do uh, a lot longer on. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd be, I'm quite interested in to learn a little bit more about your background and mm -hmm. how did you get to working within sustainable aviation fuels? How did you get to Topso? Obviously, a Danish company, you're mm -hmm. French. Um, did, and did you always want to work in the energy sector? Uh... It's a good question. Interesting. I'll be mm -hmm. short. So I'm uh, trained as a chemical engineer, graduated in France. I wanted to go abroad, ended up in Denmark. I have to be honest, I didn't really know where it was on a map <laughs> because it was 23 years ago and Scandinavia was not 20. But no, joke aside, <laughs> yeah, I had no personal connection to Denmark. Right. And then I did a PhD. It was on actually on uh, yeah, heavy oil. So the, what I like, I think, is a comp looking backwards, you can always make a story if you mm -hmm. look back. But I think I like the complexity of things in general. And this is, so I like the heavy oil, the complexity things. And then when I joined Topso in 2006, I was in R&D for 10 years, developing catalyst and process for refineries to make fossil fuels and then renewable fuels. Was really, I love the complexity. If it was easy, yeah, where mm -hmm. would the fun be? Absolutely. And then slowly I moved to, yeah, another part of the organization and I'm in strategy and innovation and anything connected to renewable fuels from technology, regulation, sustainability. I'm trying to understand and help uh, colleagues and customers so why I'm doing this, I don't know. I think it's uh, I think it's fun. It's complex. My happy place, normally what I say is knowledge sharing, complexity, and people. Right. And it's really uh, everybody has to work together in this energy transition. I'm talking to airports, airlines, people who have feedstock. It's, I've never, I'm learning so much. And people know they have to work together. So it's mm. really a new and I think the planets are aligned as well. Maybe there's also something you see in your work and mm. all the topics you address with Forza. It's all the, um, it's happening now. It's really the, this is not just for paperwork or PowerPoint knowledge. Reality is happening. It's like the new industrial revolution. The industry mm. is changing. 
when you sit in technical meetings with refineries, process engineers who are talking to you about carbon intensity, emission factors, uh, HEFA specification, mm -hmm. STM something, something, it's really happening. So to be part of this journey is really uh, really interesting and did that answer your question it does absolutely and you so you've seen maybe in the sort of uh you said you've been in Denmark sort of 20 years or so yeah have you seen this sort of um level of collaboration grow between companies and between sectors yes especially the last five years i would say mm. it's um mind-blowing really like now i have to learn about yeah mm. as i said we have to work across borders we have no one can do it alone you you need people before and after you it's not mm. about you anymore it's about the whole supply chain right so and is that being driven by the climate crisis and climate change and the need to um decarbonize yes, quickly but again it's to me i'm a strong believer of regulations so again maybe too eurocentric but it's more expensive to make alternative fuels so unless you have regulations maybe a few companies will start producing it and things. But if you look at SAF, Corsia mm. was launched many years ago. Not much happened. Production of SAF is a few hundred thousand tons per year. So because it's not compulsory to do it. So for me, unless you have to, nothing will happen. So regulations, mm. I think Paris Agreement, uh, Fit for 55, Red 2, Red 3 in the UK. Also, you have mm. uh, RTFO, uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the US, uh, in Brazil, Renovabio initiatives. Mm. Japan, Korea, it's, yes. For me, regulations are the key and the main uh, uh, yeah, driving forces right. for this change. But again, it's my take. Absolutely. No, really interesting. Um, do you have any advice then for the next generation or the new generation that are perhaps about to enter the energy industry or the um, fuels sector? What advice would you give them? We need people. <laughs> like many people think fuel is like very last year, last century, I think. And it's so not true. Like human beings like traveling, like moving. We would need, I think it's 90% of the goods are transported by ships in the world. Flights, uh, it's okay, it's a happy 1% who flies more than five times a year. But yet, I think it's a lot of people fly. I think it's 50%. I can't remember the numbers, but a lot of people take planes. Like, I live mm. away from home. I like to go home and visit my family and friends once in a while. So it's very human to travel. So we need transport fuels. And then, so it's not something of the past. So road transport will be electrified. We will still need liquid fuels. So, and also plastic industries, we need a lot of polymers in our daily life. And uh, so, and this is highly connected to what refineries are doing. So yes, the world of transport and energy is definitely a big part of the solution. It's not, uh, and we need bright minds and with new ideas and to join this world. I Absolutely. Think. And I guess so the, the, the collaborative nature of it is, is uh, yes. appealing. And the complexity and yeah. the, how fast it's changing. I've never, like, I've never worked as fast and I have to learn quickly mm. and it's so dynamic and it's really intellectually challenging, which I, which I really, really love. So yeah. Fascinating. I've, I've learned a lot researching for this episode and, and talking to you as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can see how fast and how, how much you need to learn as well. Um, just finally then, before we go again, thank you so much for your time today. Will the energy transition succeed? Define success. <laughs> I guess. It depends. I think it's my personal take, and here I'm not talking as a top employee. I think we're a bit late for the climate change. I'm, uh, I'm afraid the 1.5, at least for the 1.5 degree uh, yeah, goal. I think it's mm. too late, too slow. And I understand why I'm also working with energy and fuel producers. It takes time to implement things. And 
people don't use less people want more mm. and that's also one part of the not problem but that's it's really hard like it's it's a very complex problem but it's going in the right direction is it fast enough time will tell but mm. again regulations are forcing us to do it and i think that's the main uh, that would that should be the main driving force Absolutely. and i think people want the world to be a better place so hopefully it will work but uh, yeah will it succeed i don't know it's happening it will happen it's a matter of when and what would be the impact and will it be fast enough but that's again that's my uh, my own input that tops his input. <laughs> What's your take? What do you think, David? I think I, I think I'm along the lines with you. I think, yeah, the it will succeed. It will absolutely. We will get to a decarbonized um, economy, uh, and um, obviously, electrification is going to be a huge role in that. But of course, we need to decarbonize other areas that can't be electrified. Jet fuels, um, specifically. I think you're right. It's gonna. It's a case of when and how. The longer it takes. To do that, what then the impacts are on the world and on the climate as a result. Um, and also something we don't have time to address now, it's a social impact of mm-hmm. this and so- social justice mm-hmm. and who will pay for this and how will it impact people's lives. Many people are struggling day to day to pay the bills, to, to buy food, to buy meat. To add. So this is more expensive. So how fair, and I, in Europe they have this just transition fair to help in it, a few hundred billion, but yet it's... It is more expensive to do yeah. all that. So there will be social impact that should not be underestimated either. It's not only about, uh, yeah, engineers should not, not only be in charge. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not only about technology. It's no. really also about having a fair transition. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Well, as you said, it's all about people. I agree. I could not agree more. I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast, Absolutely. David. <laughs> Absolutely. Sylvain, thank you so much for your time today uh, on, on Energy Enablers um, and great to speak to you. Good. My pleasure. Thanks again, David. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thank you so much to Sylvain for taking part in Energy Enablers. Sylvan made such a complex topic really accessible and I found his passion for collaboration across businesses and sectors really inspiring. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening so more people can find us and check out Foresight's other podcasts. There's What Matters with me, Jan Rosenau and Michaela Hole speaking with experts on the top issues of the energy transition. And there's also Policy Dispatch with Foresight's policy editor, Sam Morgan, talking all things energy policy and regulation. You can listen to those on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Do go to www.foresightdk.com where you can find more of our in-depth journalism and learn about our subscription packages. Until next time, thanks for listening.